on this episode, we discuss about education in China, design systems, and the alchemists of our time. Hello, gents and ladies, and welcome to episode number four of Tudor Notes podcast. It's been a little bit more than one year since I published episode number three with Mitch Altman. And today I'm very, very happy to take the dust off the last episode that I recorded in 2015 and to relaunch Tudor Notes podcast in a new format with a new topic and to present that to you today. You see, in 2015, I started Tudor Notes podcast with a simple idea to record conversations I have with people I meet around the world. No central topic, no specific structure, just sit down, have an interesting conversation, record it and publish it on the internet with the hope that some of the resources, some of the stories we uncover will be useful for other folks. I had no clue that within a year I'll be involved within the education system and more specifically focused on lifetime learning. Looking at strategies and and ways people choose to create their own education, how they quantify it and how they validate the skills and competences that they acquire in, in front of other people or the system, the establishment. So the new Tudor Notes podcast will be all about self-organized learning in various disciplines, how people go about learning independently, and how can we certify and validate those experiences to put them on the same level with a university diploma or, or any other certificate. Um, so... More on, on the specifics of the new Tudor Notes podcast w- will be uncovered in episode number five. For now, enjoy the last bit of the old show. This episode number four was recorded in December 2015 at Tsinghua University in Beijing, where I spent a residency or I was a hacker in residence at the ICE Center in Beijing. My guest today is Ben Ku. He is an amazing educator, earned his PhD at MIT, and and just does some incredible stuff within the new education reform in China. We discuss a bunch of cool stuff and stories, and I hope you'll enjoy it very much. As always, please reach out on any network and share your feedback to improve this show. I'm in Beijing with Professor Ben Ku. We've been working together for a month and I heard a lot of interesting stories and background stories of how he ended up to be in Beijing and being in education here in a very exciting time for China and the world. So I decided to invite uh, Professor Ben to the Tudor Notes show. Thank you for the time today and all your wonderful work that we'll uncover in this uh, interview. So, um, for the world listening and for me personally, uh, maybe you can update me and uh, have an intro about what you do, who you are. Yes, yes. I was very glad to have a chance to talk to you about this. Um, obviously, we are here in China, 
that uh, in Beijing, um, my work uh, doesn't actually only limit to Beijing, as you mm. said. I do travel around, primarily in China, but sometimes to Southeast Asia and also in uh, other parts of China. Uh, I was originally born in Taiwan, mm -hmm. so clearly I had conducted some of my so-called XLP-based experiments over in Taiwan. It, in fact, it was the very first time it was actually started out with uh, Taiwan, um, Taiwan Tech, the uh, Taiwan uh, Institute of Science and Technology in Taiwan, the best vocational research university in Taiwan, to have uh, Professor Zhou Shuoyan helping me. And obviously, even before, or the first time I met Zhou Shuoyan was in Brazil, when we were visiting uh, 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 ITA, the Brazilian uh, Research Institute in Aero Astro. Uh, when was it? And that was in 2007 or seven, yes, I believe, that uh, uh, my office mate at MIT went and up be became the associate director of uh, that institution, the research institution, the huge research institution. And he, he invited uh, Professor Cha, the chair of uh, industry and academic co co cooperation uh, of UNESCO, mm -hmm. so that we met there in a hotel. And that's how I met Professor Joe, Professor Cha, and that's we, how we started this whole supposedly the world view of how this thing uh, uh, unravels. But obviously, there's another worldly uh, personality that must be mentioned in this uh, interview. I met uh, Mitch Altman mm. uh, in 2011 or 12, I believe. When he's three, four years ago, I don't even remember. Yeah. Exactly. Just for, for everyone listening to this podcast, um, I had Mitch Altman as a guest on the episode number three, okay. so people can check it out. Like, who is Mitch Altman? What is he doing? And all his wonderful work and link to Professor Ben and yeah. uh, what's happening in China. So yes, yes. So, so put it simply, back then in 2007, the idea was uh, Professor Cha of UNESCO chair, he's one of the most active chair professor for UNESCO who has been uh, performing and wrote a book called uh, Engineering Education Reform Strategy for China mm. and the, for the world. Is it, is it available online, like people can buy the book? Yes, you can buy the book, but it's in Chinese. Mm. And um, he has been trying to push the notion that, uh, so basically in the book there are three basic you know, ideas. The first thing is so-called learning by doing. Mm. So instead of uh, just uh, do purely theoretical you know, uh, extrapolations. The second thing is, um, so-called industry and uh, academic collaboration. So basically, he is very interested in putting students to workplaces and also get workplaces to be simulated or uh, situated within a campus mm. you know, environment. And then the third thing is so-called um, internationalization. So basically having a lot of ex international exposures. So then in Brazil, I introduced uh, Professor Cha to my former uh, thesis advisor uh, at Crowley, who was the uh, founding member of this movement called CDIO, Conceive, Design, Implement, Operate, as the so-called engineering reform initiative globally. 
I think it started by Nobel Prize Foundation or something, gave him 25 million US dollars. Started in uh, Lin Xiaoping University in Switzerland. Oh, no, no, Sweden, I mean, Sweden. Mm -hmm. And uh, many other universities, including MIT. Yes. So eventually China adopted this notion of CDIO somewhat. And uh, we published a few papers, and specifically that uh, Professor Cha and Ed Crowley and I, the three of us, wrote a paper called The Four Forces That Affect the uh, Quality of Educational Services, specifically education, engineering education services, uh, as a paper in Chinese. And actually, we did have an English version that was published, I think, in 2008 or something in Singapore. Mm. in a CDIO meeting. So basically the idea is simple, that uh, to profoundly push individuals and, and organizations to actually think about what technology can do for them, it is not just the notion of, oh, better you know, textbook, better toys. Any of these are just one angle of how things move. Mm. Uh, gets changed. The four forces, I was borrowing that concept originally from uh, Lawrence Lessig's book called Code and Other Laws in Cyberspace. In this book, he has one repetitive diagram that shows, supposedly use my language, the four forces that push the behavior of a crowd. Mm. So the four forces are architecture, law, market, and norm. Meaning that you have to have a technological uh, infrastructure to enable certain behavior before the behavior can actually take place. Then you have to do the legal framework and specifically the law enforcement execution nice. to punish or to re reward activities of certain type so that you can nourish those kind of activity or mm -hmm. diminish certain activities. And the third thing is you have to have a marketplace that has a value system that drives and attracts people to do something differently. That's something that's far away, but it's gonna be mobilizing or incentivizing people to do something. At the end, you have to have so-called the culture or norm that everybody's already doing so. Like if somebody's smoking next to you, you are forced to smoke. That's a culture, right? So basically these four forces that uh, I realized as an instructor, we can actually do it relatively easily in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Because in most classrooms, uh, a professor or a uh, instructor is totally dominating or dictating the entire environment. Yeah, because true. we're providing the knowledge, the technical infrastructure. Yeah. We are setting the law, we are enforcing the law, or we are not enforcing the law. And we are setting the grades, so that's the marketplace, which mm -hmm. is going to be recorded into the so-called grade book. So, or whatever book, so that it's going to be of value to students. So students are, are wanting that, you know, scores. Yeah. At the end, your culture, because you obviously said a culture, if you speak Chinese in the classroom, they are all speaking Chinese when you, you know, et cetera. Hmm. So obviously these four forces can relatively, because the professor or the instructor has too much power, therefore the, all these forces usually can only be managed by one person. So it's yeah, the professor so that it is constricting to the creativity of the crowd. Mm. Therefore, 
the notion is that if we were able to so-called flip the classroom, in, in my opinion, I actually invented the, the flipped classroom <laughs> without using the term. I did write the paper before the term was popular. So basically, I thought of this whole idea of this concentric circle, meaning that uh, all of these activities, if you have used the classroom as a center to allow students to demonstrate what they've done after class, class uh, uh, lecture hours, then you can set up activities within the lecture hours and allowing time for students to get on stage to talk about what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. Then it's going to actually influence and radiate out to their remaining time when they are on campus doing some other yeah. things. If you can relate everything as a platform allowing them to show what they've done in this whole week, then you're going to drive them to work on this much harder and also yeah. they'll learn more. So that's a simple idea. So that's really... So you, you mentioned like you are now a researcher and a professor and you started your introduction from somehow around 2006 or seven. Yeah. You went to Brazil and you were at MIT yeah. back then. Um, and I will touch on 2006, seven because I think it's a very interesting yeah. moment also in the hackerspace movement. Yeah. But um, can you tell us a bit what did you do before 2006 or seven, like okay. from your youth to, to, to that year? Sure, sure, sure. Um, before, t I graduated from MIT with my doctoral degree in engineering systems mm -hmm. uh, in 2005. Then I, I took a year off. Uh, I was home with my mom. My mom was very sick. Oh. She died in 2006. Um, uh, Sorry. Uh, that actually, um, Anyway, um, so, so I basically came home from, from my doctorate degree to spend like my month full with my mother. Uh, uh, then, um, then, uh, and before MIT, like before in MIT, the US? yeah, yeah I, I lived in the US for about 16 years. Uh, I stayed in Boston and worked there for three, four years. I was traveling quite a bit though during that time. And before that, I was, uh, I was working in Minnesota, mm -hmm. and I got my bachelor degree and a master degree from the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So I was a mechanical engineer, and uh, I always wanted to build something like artificial muscle or something <laughs> when I first arrived uh, in Minnesota. I uh, never had a chance to do it, but actually recently I saw some students here at, uh, um, at Tsinghua is doing that, and also the professor conducting that research is now working with me as a partner. So effectively, oh, I'm going all the way, going back to the circle. So I'm st so still working at it again. Dream is coming true. Yeah, yeah, and also he <laughs> officially sent his uh, graduate student here yesterday, and now they are here yeah. working with us. So, so anyway, the the idea is that um, back then I had always the, the dream of becoming an engineer. Because I, I, I thought being an engineer is honest. Mm. In, in a way, it's even more honest than scientist. In the sense that scientist has some theory that's relatively abstract, and also it is obviously up to further exploration to prove it is wrong. Mm. Until then, it is always believed to be right, at least by many people, especially the scientist himself. <laughs> but engineers, as a, a microphone or a camera, if it worked, you instantaneously know it worked. If airplane flies, you know it flew. <laughs> Obviously, uh, there are many conditions you can interpret them philosophically, the thing didn't really fly, it just didn't fall to the ground, right? Whatever it is, right? <laughs> so, so, so uh, in any case, uh, engineers are hackers. 
by definition. And before we even had the term of engineering. And also, I think, uh, uh, I think uh, von Karman had the best uh, uh, quote I have seen so far. He says, scientists understand or state the facts about the past. Engineers build the impossible. Mm-hmm. So on the other engineers are the hackers. They hacked practical resources into something that makes things interesting. So, so in a sense, I, that's why I chose to be a mechanical engineer, because I always wanted to be an air, aircraft. So eventually, when I get to MIT, actually, I was in the aerospace department. Mm-hmm. My advisor was department cool. head at that time. But I was, I, was, I was accepted first into the so-called system design management master's program, then eventually I got a PhD in the engineering system division, but I was more well, my work primarily was done. You can see my PhD thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, I will add a link to that. Yes, yes, book. yes. So, so, um, so all the work was really about how do we build very interesting products or physical systems that really reveal the intent of the original designer. And what is the intent is usually, again, coming back to this you know, crowd uh, behavior. That is how you want to configure your physical universe mm. with your consciousness. So the two cannot be separated. That's what I'm Excellent. trying to say. So engineers almost always should have a, a blueprint in his mind. And obviously, he's, has, he's going to have to modify the blueprint once he faces reality. Right? Mm-hmm. So this interplay between subjectivity and objectivity is really what an engineering process is. So actually, I made a big poster when I was at MIT as a PhD student about you know, interplay between subjectivity and objectivity. So all my <laughs> you know, professors say, oh, this is really abstract. You, know, you shouldn't be doing this. You know? But said, that's me. You know, I want to do this. Right? <laughs> so, so again, I, I always thought of myself both as an engineer and as a philosopher. Obviously, I worked there for seven, six, seven years. Um, uh, when I was doing my master's, I actually went to United Technologies working there, uh, United Technology Research Center. Mm-hmm. So I was working with engineers to build a, a computer-based simulation environment for a complete air, aircraft power system. Cool. So I was also trained to actually know the parts of a jet engine. It went through like four days. To be honest, I didn't remember one name of a part. Probably <laughs> nasal or something or whatever. I don't even remember <laughs> any one of these parts. But uh, I, I, however, I did remember one because it's too complicated. But I did remember one thing explicitly. I asked many of the senior engineers who worked for 10, 20 years. I said, well, with all these pipes that connects all these different, you know, bleed air, this, you know, hot air, this cold air, whatever air, have you ever thought about using something like a uh, uh, layout algorithm by um, the, the integrated circuit industry, the electronic industry, to automatically lay out these pipes, mm-hmm. you know, to make it more compact, you know, better design, blah, blah, blah. Mm, they said, mm, we never thought about it, and it shouldn't be done that way, and it couldn't be possibly be done. Then I said, well, there's, what are the good questions to ask? I'm trying to be in a smart ass. Mm-hmm. So I said, I asked another very senior engineer, like 60 years or something, an older gentleman. I think he's, he's British. He's from Rolls Royce, right? So he's been seeing at least two companies, right? United Technologies work on, um, uh, you know, jet engines in the United States, and Rolls Royce and built yeah. the other ones in, in the U.S., uh, in the U.K. So then he said, mm, 
what do you want? No, I know I've worked in many places. I said, well, put it simply, how do you price the cost or the price of the jet engine? Mm. Don't know. <laughs> so it turns out it is, in many cases, all these numbers are determined. I would say, at least from this senior engineer's reaction, not necessarily having a complete system. Even though we talked about how to do design, we went to a methodology, and, and the, the director of the research at that time, I think I now remember the name, Carl Nett, he was eventually fired, and I, I was told I was physically removed from premise. <laughs> um, he, he actually wanted to have a very, very rigorous methodology to design jet engine and other parts of United Technology systems. But uh, uh, obviously, knowing that he was removed from, from, from premise, you know, physically, I meant, that's what I heard. I don't know for sure. Uh, I didn't see. I was not there. <laughs> uh, but uh, more importantly, uh, the whole process, I believe, even for very large companies, back in 2001 when I was there, uh, I don't think it is mature to a point that, uh, that uh, at least what I saw there for a year in United Technology, I didn't see it was that interesting. Mm. At least uh, it didn't impress me not even one from this day. I was almost you know, kind of let go too, so <laughs> I, nothing to say. Uh, so, so anyway, so, so after that, I went back to MIT as a PhD student. I wanted to think through this problem. How can we have a convincing methodology to get people to create and build interesting stuff? So would you say that, that was the turning point that you switched from being an engineer to being interested about you know, and group learning and education and all that stuff, design? And uh, actually, I, I, I was a software engineer before that. So I've been building software systems with many people. So mm -hmm. I was trained to use soft, uh, source code control and other tools. So when I started working with, for a traditional kind of company, I was immediately shocked and also interested to know that, that there, was, there are so many software-based group collaboration technologies that were not used. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I was fairly proud in introducing to United Technology was that I went back to MIT, I found a company called Oculus. Uh, that company basically built uh, adapters for mature software uh, like SOLIDWORKS, you know, parametric technologies. Mm -hmm. So they built uh, adapters into those systems and they allow this information to be synchronized with other software platforms. So you can very easily, by drawing a data flow, you can change the shape of a specific device and then all of the parameters will be automatically updated in other parts of software. So you can show all these things show up in this Excel spreadsheet and use the Excel spreadsheet to actually do the accounting or calculation for a cool. much more complex system. So before I introduced Oculus, we had a bunch of engineers, like I think 20 or some odd full-time PhD engineers trying to write Excel script and also some adapters themselves to do that work for one kind of design process. And, and uh, later when I was doing this, when I was introduced to these tools, I immediately adopted the tool. Within two weeks, we built the whole system you know, with existing adapters and with existing software. We, we could do the same kind of simulation for design. 
But obviously, in any case, I, I over time I realized none of these two actually matters mm. until you really had one mind, one team that actually has a group consciousness that knows what exactly we want to accomplish with this engine. Excellent. So, mm. Notice I use the term group consciousness. Just have a bunch of data, just have a bunch of you know, cat drawings with beautiful animations with one thing that links everything is not sufficient. These are all mechanical stuff. If you spend enough time, you can build very beautiful demonstration. As of now, you can go to video theaters and watch this beautiful 3D animated you know, hologram, whatever thing. Yeah. But ultimately, those are all the mechanics. You have to imagine back then when they built SR-71, when they built the Apollo system, it was not done by these fancy gimmicks. Mm -hmm. It was done by a bunch of very intentive individuals. They together working as a crew, knowing what needs to be fixed. Yeah, and I guess all the drawings were just on the paper. Yes, no back then it was purely, yeah, no, no such thing, right? No cell phones, right? So anyway, so when I get back to MIT, um, after a while, I first was uh, hired by my advisor. Then he put me onto a Microsoft uh, research grant for one semester. So I basically tried to re-implement re what I did in U United Technologies to uh, MIT's uh, Aristos uh, learning lab. Mm. But uh, very soon, because we didn't do that kind of sophisticated design, so I worked with some undergrads and graduate students for fun for a semester. Then I was put on the project to work for Draper Lab, which is the, 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 co the company that builds the uh, guidance system for rockets, <laughs> uh, for, for missiles, right, specifically for, for Navy. It was well known, right? Then, uh, then Draper, was also once, once a lead chairman for aerospace department at MIT, the, the, the Draper, uh, Charles Draper, yeah. Mr. Draper. So, so uh, Draper asked me to build a tool that can actually think about design in a very interesting way. So at the same time... So the tool was supposed to be a software tool? or Yes, they, they, at that time they were envisioning as a software tool. I still remember very clearly I had the simple diagram showing that there is an act, act, application which being a tool. Actually, application being the case for design. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to design some specific gimmicks for, for Draper. And then we want to have a theory to back it up to know how to kind of think through this application. And then in, the, in between, we actually have the tools. So the tools enables the average engineers to apply the theory of design. Mm. So when I first arrived at MIT, I took the course from uh, Professor Nam Su. He was a chairman for the mechanical engineering department. He invented the theory called axiomatic design. So he believes that all designs should be following a set of functional requirements, which should be stated in yes and or no measurable propositions. Then these yes and no propositions together can have a combined probability measure. And he calls it an information content. And then by stating you know, functional requirements as independently as possible, and then you can express the independence in some kind of matrix form, 
then you can delineate and actually judge how good is the independence being met. Then you can actually do the calculation of the overall probability of success for fulfilling all the function requirements, assuming you can calculate them. Uh And that number is going to be measured as the so-called information content, the less the better. So basically, these two axioms together supposedly can help you reason about any design. So, so you basically take design, which generally in our public is considered this creative, arty work, and put hardcore data and math to it. Yes, to, yes. To Remember, it's when I took this course, it was 2000, exactly year 2000, the first semester, starting, I think, February 2000. So he was rewriting his book and later published in 2001, uh, called the uh, Examinative Design, the book. So you can find it on Amazon, I believe. Uh, but then I discovered that the way he calculated uh, the, the overall probability for design fulfilling functional requirements were wrong. <laughs> and it was being wrong for at least 10, 20 years or something. So the, he, the, the, the TA at that time was, uh, later became a professor at uh, Cornell, Cornell, I think his name is, uh, um, uh, I forgot his name right now, but uh, I actually told him and also told Professor Nam Su. Both, both of them agreed my calculation was right because I was just taking a probability analysis that semester, so I knew I was right. <laughs> and the other student who was taking that with me were some other engineers from Xerox and whatnot. They didn't agree with me because they realized that my calculation is different from the textbook. And then I showed them, if you know simple conditional probability calculation, this has to be the way to do it. And eventually they'll agree with me, but uh, they didn't fix the textbook though. <laughs> so, so anyway, the point is that uh, regardless, I still consider XMI design a beautiful theory and also uh, beautiful with some flaws, as I stated, but still a very nice and interesting uh, way to frame how design can be measured and explained. I see. So, so with all these kind of um, uh, theoretical framing, and I was also introduced to something like Triz, which is a Russian inventor, you know, uh, Gengrich L. Schuller. And I was taught by the invention machine company's engineers at least one or two times. We invited them to, they are a Boston company, to, to MIT. So I also knew about this Triz, the methodology. Okay. Triz, T-R-I-Z, theory for invention methods or something. The theory of T-R-I-Z. Yeah. Uh, when I came back to China, I actually eventually went, went to Taiwan. I knew the person who was pushing Triz in Taiwan, Professor Professor Xu. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's also the, the, the Tsinghua in Taiwan. I see. So the even funnier is that uh, I lost contact with him for two or three years. Eventually, he got invited by our department to be a visiting professor and sat next door from my office. <laughs> cool. So I met him almost every day, you know, last semester. So when did you start at Tsinghua as a professor? The end of 2006, November 2006. Why I said that I will come to this year because from the conversation with Mitch, um, 2006 was the year when he took uh, a year off to do yeah. whatever he loves with electronics. 
And in 2006, 2007, he started to um, attend all these hacker conferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, like, 2007 is believed to be also the year when hackerspaces started to explode all Mm. over the world Mm. and they have the design patterns and so on. So Mm. while you started to do the pioneering work here, also the hackerspace spread around the world and a couple of years later, you ended up working together. Yeah, I think it's taken at least three to four years before the two of us met. I never even knew the term hackerspace until I met uh, Mitch. And uh, however, when in 2007, I started calling my, my office the toy house. <laughs> because I think most of Tsinghua students doesn't know how to play. So I convinced my department to buy me at least one or two boxes of Lego Mindstorm. Mm. Because I was using that to train MIT engineers when I was uh, there. I was trained by uh, the first generation of Mindstorm myself. That's why I really liked my, my, my MIT years. But anyway, so uh, Toy House was the name of my office. So effectively, that was a hackerspace, you know, with all the, you know, physical intent. Uh, then uh, um, the notion that engineers must be focusing and also be sincerely interested in creating something out of nothing is an essential part of the life experience and also the intent of being an engineer. At the same time, I also want to emphasize that when I was working with UNESCO and also going to many conferences and writing the so-called uh, the policy briefings, I've also explicitly stated that um, engineering education is not about engineering perfect. It's not about teaching or educating professional engineers only. Mm-hmm. Engineering education is about preaching and also delivering the engineering or technologically enabled culture to the mm. masses. Mm. Because only if you have prepared the masses to be able and technology ready, they are willing and capable of living with unavoidable technology that's already out there in our everyday life. So some people and like professors and um, activists that want to change education in the West would call this technological literacy. Yeah, literacy, yes, 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 exactly. That's a good term. I like that, that use of that language, so I'm, I'm, I have no problem with that. And uh, that literacy will enable you, whoever you are, will be able to better tap into and knowing the consequence of how you tell you use technology. Okay. Of course, people who know the consequences may not be using it right, in the right way <laughs> or in a good way, right? But regardless, at least he's doing this consciously. Uh, hopefully those people who are trying to do bad things with are not competent enough, right? So they will not hurt people as bad. Uh, sometimes the competency is also an important thing. So, so actually I should say instead of technology literacy is we need to get people to have technology competency. Competency and literacy together, we will be able to make some judgment. And also, one more time, with the proper conscious use of these tools, and also the willingness and the awareness of the consequences of these tools, we obviously need to assume and we also need to enforce that good intention of these uses are available. Mm. And at least it's possible. And some of these are mechanically computable. Then we have some safe net, safety net to, to protect ourselves from technologies. Yeah. But that's actually why, over time, I didn't think, I, I, to be honest, I've been saying, uh, 
I've been dreaming that the technology will be moving very fast when I was a teenager. That was 30 years back. And everything I was able to dream 15 years back has already became reality. 30 years back, when I was 15 years old, I couldn't possibly believe I can own the whole world of internet in my palm with all these sensors and also actuators and video camera and virtual and augmented reality all in one device that can hook up to your, you know, your uh, headset and everything is you know, self-guided you know, GPS communicating with satellites. That's totally a farce. But we now know everybody has it in your hand. Yeah. Right? But now, thinking 30 years from now, my, my son is going to be in his teens very soon. That once he becomes 10 years old, actually this year, yeah, this year after this, this, uh, this December, he'll be 10 years old. Then right. he's going to look 30 years out and say, what would that world be? Mm. Right? So, so that world is guaranteed, I think, be, to be different than the ones we have right now. For sure. And knowing what we know, and knowing so much content knowledge is already built in just by paper, and it's written down either on a computer or something, we know if we wipe out the whole civilization, as long as some of the human memory is not completely wiped out, reconstructing what we had experienced so far, will be absolutely 100,000 times faster yeah. than what we had seen before, you know, by Moore's law. Yeah. Because we have been in initiated, right? Because the physical laws and all these things, it can be passed down by, by, by simple language, by words and mouth. Mm. So that alone, I'm confident, even in you know, Africa or in China's remote area, we can build a new civilization very fast. So that comes back to hackerspace. Mm. I think hackerspaces are sanctuaries for the remaining of remainings of the alchemist community. <laughs> nice comparison. Right? We are the alchemists now. We are not this money-hugging, you know, policy-complying and uh, ass-kissing, you know, <laughs> people that uh, want to please the world. We are the alchemists that can actually live and wanting to communicate with the nature, mm. with, the, with the minds of gods, right? With the intention of the, the original creator's intention and also the possibilities that he left open for us. That's what the alchemists have always been trying to do. As Newton being one of the you know, famous, most famous alchemists and literally invented not modern or classic physics, if you will, and also the mathematics. Computation later reinvented or invented, you know, by Turing, right? All these foundational invention of minds, the mind mechanism, I'm not talking about devices they made, mm -hmm. they made obviously that's also important, that the mind devices they made in their head is really the foundation of how we can hack. Mm. So you've been doing pioneering work back in the U.S., but also once you arrived here in 2006 and seven, and ever since you've been introducing some really innovative courses here and you bring all these internationals to hang out at the Tsinghua and do cool things. And we are at the moment where everyone is in China is embracing this concept of hacker maker education. 
what is going on? Why do you think it's happening now that a country that receives so, so much negative media from outside of being conservative and close-minded suddenly said, we want hackers all over? Oh. So <laughs> this is the part you don't understand China at all. China as of now is still ruled by the Communist Party. Mm. And Communist Party, as you know, we believe, not we, uh, the central government still believes in Karl Marx doctrines of what is communism. We still occasionally mention it, and mm. all students still have to take courses on Marxism. Mm. On the other hand, China is not conservative by any standards, and Marxists, Marxists in general are not conservative, conservative people, right? Mm. And more specifically, that uh, China, ever since the major wars between the West and the East, China has been very aggressively changing itself mm. to try to survive, if not passively being beaten up by the external forces. But then locally right now, China purely from a manufacturing capacity, purely from a cash flow viewpoint, it is a cash flow rich company. That's mm. a fact mm. right now. For, for now, I don't know for how long, but that's for now is the case. Even if it's not the case, manufacturing capacity and knowing tools can do wonders is really not only the first time to Chinese people, it is the first time to many, many people in many, many third world countries mm. and even to the first world country. And for now, China, the penetration of number of cell phones, especially smartphones, I am strongly convinced is higher than even the upper middle class in the United States. Wow. The frequency of using smartphones is going to be much, much higher than, mm. you know, than in many other countries. And also the level of addiction to these kind of devices. So therefore, you cannot ever say China is going to be conservative com countries anymore because its minds has been, all the biological minds are now being physically wired with this high-speed 4G network. And everybody is tapped into WeChat. The collective minds of Chinese cannot be considered to be conservative anymore. Mm. I see. Interesting. Right? So, so in that sense, the kind of thing they do, this kind of thing they act, may not be acting like the traditional kind of culture and human society anymore because it is actually not just on steroids. It's on silicon. It's some Germanium, it's some many other kinds of you know, exotic material to, to do the thinking that we don't even know. Mm. Again, the thinking, of course, you know, I don't want to go into Turing complete and Turing you know, test kind of argument, that, that what is making them to do the decisions mm. is not known by anybody to work on this level. If you count a number of Chinese people, each counting as a cell, we almost already emulate a very complete brain, you know, function of the, in terms of number of neurons, right? And obviously each Chinese has many, many billions of neurons, you know, each, and they can do in parallel processing. So, so, so Chinese is not conservative. Mm. They are malleable, they are willing to change, and also they are five times the population of, China, of human in China than the United States, right? So, any, any given time that uh, you want to create a sub-country that has emulate uh, a Holland, a Belgium, you know, a Tanzania, 
you roughly have the right amount of people with the right kind of technical or you know financial you know whatever classification of sufficient number of people, and you can literally give them a few WeChat messages and call them all to the same place. They might show up, you know, to create a new country in five minutes. I'm 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 halfway joking, but it is now a feasible thing to do here in China. Wow. Right. Okay. And why why you know they they could um, just say we want more innovative classes, whatever, but they use the term maker hacker culture, which in its original form was more form of, you know, rebellion and activism and people who want to get out of the system and do things they love and enjoy and like hobby. And now a government suddenly embraces it and said, everyone, you're welcome here and everyone in every school, every university hack stuff. Like, what was the turning point? What happened? Okay, I think the, the turning point comes along with the fact the government knows that uh, the whole world's economy is slowing down. Mm. That's a very clear sign, mm. right? There's simply overcapacity everywhere for at least 10 years. I mean, if you go to the factories and also the, the vocational, vocational schools I've been to in China, you know there are many, many high-end manufacturing equipment that were just sitting idle. Mm. And there are millions of dollars worth of equipment. They need to be maintained. They, they need to be kept in order. But they are not being used. So that means if you actually want to build many more cars and many more whatever, there will be enough people. And there will be enough physical machinery to produce them right now. And not just the price issue. Just because they want to keep these machines up and going, that uh, they can literally pay you to, to use and, and take this away from their factory. Mm. So so economy is going to a free economy even for a paid, okay, actually paying economy, meaning that if you consume, we'll pay you more. <laughs> well, that's basically what happened in the US when they did a bailout, so they would encourage people to... Exactly, actually that's, that's right. Many countries actually in the last five years officially set up, I even received money from Taiwan, they officially gave you cash to make sure you go out there and buy stuff. Oh, wow, that's kind of fucked up. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, we've in this situation that we are right now, you know, the government embracing it and people are uh, interested to do cool things with education and you've been here at the beginning of this kind of wakening up to do cool stuff. What's next for you? What are you doing? Obviously, being a researcher and also being uh, supposedly a teacher, uh, what I have to do is really still thinking about the future. Mm. Meaning that Anything I do in order to make it relevant, that will not be tested and also properly articulated until certain processing. That means by the time I finish publishing whatever I said I do, there will be already one or two years out. Mm. So as you just said, I have to think about what is in the future. And I have to think two, three, five years out mm. in order to actually produce stuff. By the time you read my things, that will be relevant. I see. And also, as you just kind of noticed that, most of the thing I did three, four, five years in the past was roughly what is happening right now, and that is being caught on by the massive 
Uh, obviously, uh, I should have been doing a better job of documenting what I did in the past. But obviously, that uh, the world is moving toward a learning by doing, learning by playing kind of you know educational model. Mm. And also, the world is going to a network-based uh, learning and knowledge dissemination model. And the world is becoming more internationalized. And there are many, many more international students on campus. And we have been sending students out everywhere around the world. Like mm. last night, we go to a party, everybody's yeah. international from everywhere. Right? So, so China, especially Beijing, is actually international territory. Mm. It's actually not just a city, it is a war zone. <laughs> it is being constructed. Yes, yes. It is, it is being constructed and deconstructed at the fastest pace human has ever seen. Mm. We're all in the same city at the same time, with good and bad conflicts. Mm. So that's the kind of life experience I think nobody else would possibly directly experience unless you're in the game. Yeah. So well, the first trip to China when we did that hacker trip in October. Yeah. You know, I came with almost no expectation and I was yeah. open to discover a new country and I left the country with way more respect than I, I came. Like this speed of building things and improving, even if it's you know bad first time, even if it doesn't work, but the scale of how things are done here is just I didn't see anywhere else. And I think there is a learning curve to it that people, of course, will realize the mistakes, I hope, and then improve in time. So that's really impressive. Yeah, no one can work at the China speed. No one can work at the Beijing or Shenzhen speed. Mm. Shenzhen is even faster than Beijing in some ways. I went, I went there a few times this year and last year. Was, I was very impressed. But even that, that takes a coordination between multiple cities to kind of play off each other. Shenzhen is very good at manufacturing. Beijing is very good at uh, IT. So you have a lot of IT companies here. Nice. So that uh, it, the, the opportunity is just enormous and also unimaginable. And also the pain and sorrows are also as bad. And you know the Beijing air. Mm. Right? It's painful and it's actually a national, nationwide, even a global issue now. But regardless, the whole structure is going to continue, I would say, for at least two to three years because uh, the, 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 the pent-up demand, because the hacker movement is going to create another kinds of consumer. Mm. I'm not even, even considering that producers. Hackers, actually, I, I should say officially this, the so-called maker movement in China, Chuanke, whatever movement in China, <laughs> that um, is going to create another kinds of consumption so that they can change the way they get their population to consume goods here. Mm. So over time, I think it's actually a smart, interesting move for government to do. But then, how can people not just again fall into the pure consumer kind of consumerism, but actually through the process of doing things, actually learn something from the process? That would be interesting. Obviously, however, you, 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 you cut it, that as long as people are making something, it's more likely they'll know and learn a few things. I mean, better than watching you know, Hollywood movies all day long. Yeah. Right? I do watch Hollywood movies, but <laughs> I cannot just only right. watch them. Right? So. Um, yeah, I'm really happy to see that you know, the government realizes that the economy, also the manufacturing capacity, 
in China is more than it's going to be needed in a couple of years and it's turning its citizens from just, you know, assembly workers towards, hey, go out and make something and learn about the world and have art classes and build stuff with your hands and stuff. So it's, it's really exciting to see what's going to happen in the next years and, you know, to, to follow up maybe another interview in a year and sure. <laughs> check out sure. what's, what changed. So in all your work, and you mentioned some books before, can you recommend some links or books or resources for people who uh, are also interested in, you know, new ways of education and learning that, you know, would are inspired by your work and want to do something? Okay, first of all, I, the first thing I want to link to you too is not my personal work. I'm working with them right now, but not officially yet. I'm mm-hmm. going to visit them. That is the ChemWiki link. Mm-hmm. The ChemWiki at UC Davis, uh, University of California Davis, uh, Professor Larson Del Mar. Ah, chemistry. Chemistry, yes. Okay. Uh, Professor Larson Del Mar and uh, Ron Russe of uh, Diablo Valley College. Mm. That I invited Ron Russe here twice, and I was going to invite uh, Delmar here too, but he couldn't come because of uh, 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 Thanksgiving. I see. So, but regardless, I'm going to visit them very soon for a simple reason that um, uh, they are trying to get students when they're taking whatever chemistry courses, instead of just reading and buying textbook, they are going to write the textbook using wiki entries. Cool. So I invited Professor Ron Russe here uh, in the later part of this summer so that I started moving all my students to the wiki platform. So we're using Toyhouse Wiki as a platform to get students to write their learning summaries on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. And I immediately see results. Because once they start writing things on a public you know, website, obviously we're locking it down only for people who have, who have accounts to that, that website. But still, they are exposing themselves to other students. And they quickly, very quickly, realize that they have to write well. Mm -hmm. So you can see the curve, you know, (laughs) the quality of writing. The second part is um, by having many people listening and taking the same course, they will have to define certain uh, terminologies using a unique page. But when you use wiki, every unique term may be overwritten by other people. Mm. So then you are forced to realize and actually edit something with others. So effectively, that is a kind of crowd learning. That's a kind of crowd consciousness captured. And also, Wiki has this ability to keep version. So you have many versions of your history. So by looking at how frequently I modify this, we can see how well you're doing things. So that's how we plan to actually use it as a platform to push forward. Mm. And the second thing I hope that uh, I will be able to deliver soon is the notion of building, again, the jet engines. Mm. So I've been looking and searching for many, many uh, websites and also uh, guiding material to build jet engines because I plan to have model jet engines built by students and to replace the metal workshop here around China. So I've already find five or six, six schools wanting to work with me immediately cool. for this. And actually the people physically are here working on some of the projects. So, so very shortly I will be, I have actually published a few papers, unfortunately in Chinese, talking about the methodology of how to do crowd learning, how to do extreme learning process. Um, Is there any book that kind of have 
some similar ideas that is in English and available on Amazon that we can link to this interview? Uh, not this interview right now. Uh, I don't know of any specific. Oh, okay. You can go to uh, reimagineducation.com. Mm-hmm. I have written up some links there. So there are some short videos about uh, extreme learning process. So reimagine-education.com. Mm-hmm. It was run by uh, Wharton School of Business and uh, QS Star, the mm-hmm. uh, global university ranking agency. So yeah. they, they invited me to... Is it the, the agency that also awarded you with the best yeah, yeah. professor in Asia, right? No, no, not best professor in Asia. It's the it's extreme learning process won the Asia Regional Award. Oh, so the, yeah. the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the methodology. Yeah, so. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So, the last question. I, I'm sure we can discuss even more about you yeah. know education and learning and stuff, but uh, I'll keep it under one hour interview. Yeah. Um, so the last question is a dictatorship question. So imagine okay. you know. Oh, um, by the way, what's the population of Beijing? Thirty million, probably so, 25, 30 million. So imagine you have the power to give half the population, fifteen million people, a T-shirt. And you can place a message on that T-shirt. What's what is it saying? What should I say? Yeah. What's like, fifteen million people walk around in a piece of clothing, and there is a message on their chest. What's that message? So I'll, I'll just say right now, be yourself, <laughs> or be myself. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. It was Thank a you. pleasure. Um, if you have some links or books or um, you know websites that people should check out just send me via email i will yeah. add it to to the um, blog post sure uh, the, the interview will also be on soundcloud and itunes and, sure uh, wow you know, thank you for your time Wonderful. thank you okay. great thanks